Let's go to Colossians chapter 1, as that is where we are putting in at now. Colossians. Now, you'll notice in your um, bulletin that it has uh, chapters 1 through 2 verse 4 tonight. 2 verse 5, excuse me. And the next week, you're going to do the rest. So if you read chapters 1 and 2, you're a little bit ahead. Good for you. And um, we're going to cover the rest of it next week. So yes, Pastor Mike, we are doing two chapters a week. It's about averaging it out. So one and a half tonight and then two and a half next week. So Colossians chapter 1 again. And uh, this is what I want to draw your attention to first and foremost. As you can see on the board, uh, what we're going to be emphasizing is what Paul is really bringing out of this book is that Jesus is big. (laughs) Just Jesus. That's where I want us to return as we come to Colossians for these next two weeks. I want us to remember that we must keep the main thing the main thing we must remember that it is Jesus who saved us and it is Jesus who's the head of the church and it is Jesus who will give you everything that you need to make this life count for him and to be full with God. So that's what we're going to be doing. So look with me at chapter two, verse six, and you'll see where this is all going. So in chapter two, verse six, you have, um, chapter one, All the way up to 2 verse 5 is really a big, long Thanksgiving introduction from Paul. He really begins his agenda in 2 verse 6. So that's what we're going to start next week. But you'll see with me what it says is this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. As you have received Christ Jesus our Lord, so walk in him. So what Paul is asking us to do, what he is telling the Colossians they need right now is to remember, remember how you received Jesus. Remember who it is that you came to and the way in which you received him. And then remembering that, that it was just Jesus I came to. He asked for nothing more. He didn't make me jump through hoops or recite the entire Old Testament. He took me sinful and rebellious as I was. And he took me and with his grace, he saved me. He's transforming, giving me his Holy Spirit as you have received. Received Jesus. So walk in that same way with Jesus. See, the Colossians have been overcomplicating this. And Paul is writing to them to say, we got to get this back to the center. It's about Jesus. Don't overcomplicate how you came to him and don't complicate how others are going to come to him. It's about coming simply to Jesus. And in that frame of mind, keep going in that way. Don't make it harder and harder just because, well, we got to find out who's really mature and who's not mature. We're not trying to weed out people and grade them on a scale or something. We just want Jesus to be the center, the head, that which we orbit around. Our lives, our desires, our thoughts, and the way that we operate as we gather together on a weekly or more than one time a week basis. Amen. That's just Jesus. So let me now clarify that just Jesus is not, does not mean that we're reducing or belittling or we're making somehow like Jesus is great. Now like, well, it's just Jesus. (laughs) That's the wrong tone to hear that in just Jesus means we are belittling and reducing everything that has cluttered the centrality, the supremacy or the preeminence of Jesus. That's what we're doing. We're stripping away the distractions so that what we're left with is a raw, organic, and authentic Jesus with all of his unhindered, unadulterated power made available to us. That's what Paul wants to get across in Colossians. Now, Colossians, uh, Colossae, the city... um, Paul never goes there, so we're not like familiar with that city or any story behind it. Paul's never visited it. Um, but a guy named Epaphras, whom we read about in chapter 1, he apparently uh, knew Paul and then went from Paul to go start a church in Colossae. And what Colossae was up to was uh, apparently there were false teachers in the church of Colossae. Now, when I say false teacher, we can have a myriad of opinions about what a false teacher is. We might have different categories of how to label a false teacher. But what we have in Colossians is a very unspecific description of who these false teachers are. Unfortunately, Paul doesn't call them out by name. He doesn't describe in detail what it is that they're teaching. He just simply makes because we're remember we're on one side of the conversation, right? 
We don't know what Epaphras in the Colossian church has said to Paul. We just know what Paul's saying to them. So he doesn't really spell out in detail what is going on. All he does is he basically re-coaches this church to bring the focus, forget all that other stuff, and bring the focus back to just Jesus. So with what we can do is we can reconstruct from what Paul is saying and get a basic idea of what was going on. And this is basically all they can come. I read a few pages or so on different ideas and different people, like what's going on in Colossae. And there's, there's wide ranging ideas, but it seems to be that what you can get down for certain is that this is what the false teaching in Colossae looks like. The false teaching, as we go in this book, is defined as any teaching that strips Jesus of his sufficiency. It's any teaching that strips Jesus of his sufficiency. What I mean by that is any time a teaching says that Jesus alone is not enough, we've now entered into the realm of a false teaching. And what Paul does then is he addresses this problem in Colossians and he magnifies Jesus so high. In fact, many people basically go to Colossians and say, this is the most Christological book in the Bible. By Christological, that's just a theological word for the study of the divinity of Jesus. Here, it's very clear that Jesus is huge. And we're going to read a passage tonight that is one of the most famous in the Bible about who Jesus is. And this is what he wants them to see is he is sufficient, not just to get you to God. And then God all of a sudden says, oh, cool. Now that you met Jesus, I have a few things for you to do. You're not tithing as much as you should. Maybe you should join that home group or maybe you need to stop. I don't know. Just he's, he's not. He's not coming at us with all of these things. Now that you got Jesus, let's graduate. Paul wants to say Jesus is sufficient for your entry into the life of God and for your furtherance in the life of God. That Jesus is all that you need. We don't need to fill it with this other fluff and stuff. I had a little ring to it. (laughs) That he is the center of what it means to be a Christian, a Christian, a Christ follower. And that is what it is. It's about Jesus. And we can sometimes get this too bogged down with other things. And that's when we get in trouble. So let me uh, give you this. This is false teaching. False teachers say this. Jesus plus fill in the blank equals completeness. So yeah, they, they, what they're doing is they're not cutting Jesus necessarily down. They're not necessarily attacking him saying, oh yeah, he's not really the son of God or anything. They're not really attacking Jesus. They're simply saying, great, good for you. You believe in Jesus, but now stop drinking. Or you believe in Jesus. Now you must start yoga practices because that's where the deeper truth lies. Or you have Jesus, and now you must add this religious ritual into your walk. That's where false teaching goes. Is it be, it, by adding the great idol and, by saying Jesus and this, that's when we begin to strip Jesus of his sufficiency. He's no longer sufficient. We need something with him to complete us. But Paul saying, no, Jesus in and of himself gives everything that you need to live your life, to walk through your tests and challenge and trial, and to become as godly as you can be before you pass off of this earth. It is all found in Jesus. So just Jesus is reinforcing the sufficiency of him, that he is enough. It is remembering that the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing that Jesus is always at the center. And again, not reducing just Jesus, but purely just Jesus magnifying the raw, organic, authentic Jesus in all of his power and unadulterated worthiness. That is what Paul wants to accomplish here with the Colossians. So with that said, um, Brandon, is it okay then if we pray? Are you saying that prayer and Jesus is, uh, no, don't pray. It's just Jesus. Just No, of course. We need to be praying. We need to be in the scriptures. We need to be in fellowship 
with other Christians. But see, what we need to understand is that these things are good only as long as they support the sufficiency of Jesus. So in other words, if my prayers are bringing me to a deeper understanding that Jesus has it all and I get everything I need in him, then my prayers are about just Jesus. When we study the Bible for just Jesus, scriptures are teaching us then about the sufficiency of Jesus. But when we start to teach the Bible in a way in which we're all about attacking uh, people that don't have our beliefs and, uh, and reinforcing the same beliefs over and over and over, there's a certain hobby horses that are riding. Suddenly, we're not making this just about Jesus. We're making this it's, it's Jesus plus Calvinism equals a complete Christian. And, and you have teachers out there like that, right? They harp on certain things and everybody else is wrong. And that isn't using scripture for just Jesus. That's using scripture for Jesus and my agenda or we're right and everybody else is wrong. And we must make sure that in our prayers, in our study of scripture, and in the way that we fellowship with one another, it's all about the sufficiency. It supports and it upraises and it magnifies more than we had seen him as upon entering these practices that Jesus is enough and more than enough. That's so, so things in your Christian life are fine. And listen, if, if for you, that's some of these other things like abstinence from alcohol or even drinking, if that Liberty for you is there, as long as these things are making it your life about Jesus, keep going yoga, all the other like questionable things that people debate about, like, are these things? Okay. Let's just remember that this is solid. This is true. You'll never go wrong here. As long as you say just Jesus, no pluses or minuses to make me complete. That's what Paul is getting at here. And that's where we are going. So now that we have that clear, let us go into chapter one. So Paul, with his usual introductions, tells us who he is. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And then Timothy's with him writing this letter. And so he then addresses the saints, the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. So... Grace was, uh, it, this is a play on words in the Roman Empire. There was a, uh, a word they used to greet one another um, that sounded much like grace in Greek, charis. Uh, they used a word, it was, uh, if I remember right, it's uh, caress. It's really close. And so the Romans would say that, and then the church changed it slightly with a little vowel twist and made it grace. So they had their own patented greeting to one another. And then, of course, peace is the way that Jews greeted one another. Shalom, shalom. Uh, so grace and peace. You have this authentic Christian greeting and this Jewish greeting combined, and the church has their own way of saying hi to each other. It's pretty cool. Then in verse 3. So what we're going to see is Paul is going to be in prayer for this church because he's concerned about their growth. So in verse three, we see this. We thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. So wait, we got this good report about how well you guys are doing, this love you have for one another and their faithfulness to Jesus. And ever since we heard that, we keep on thanking God for you in our prayers. And so there's more good news about them. Uh, in verse 6, we see that the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. So through the Colossians, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. It's increasing through them. And Paul's, this is wonderful news. This church is progressing. They're doing good things. And then in verse 9, so after saying that he's heard these good reports about them, he says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Interesting. This is not our typical manner of praying. We hear about the bad things going on. Oh, Lord, Johnny, help him. His, his, his teenager isn't listening to him. And ran away from home the other night, got his girlfriend pregnant. Lord, Johnny and his household need your help. And then when we hear that Johnny and his household gets help and the teenager like became a Christian and like totally obedient kid and like, you know, this angel doesn't even touch the ground, shiny halo everywhere he goes. Uh, 
and everything is peachy and good in the household. We're like, oh, thank you, God, for answering that prayer. Who's next? That's, that's how we pray. We move from problem to problem to problem. And when problem solves, like we check it off the box. Like, yes, yes, success, success. And we move on to the next person. What we need to understand is that it's, is it precisely in the moment that things are going really, really, really well and that Christians are being really, really, really fruitful that we are most vulnerable to falling and to the attacks of the enemy because the enemy cares most about the fruitful christian i don't like him he's this person nobody even knows he's a christian i don't care about him but this person i'm after them and it is in those fruitful moments that we must keep praying maybe even especially more so for people in those moments oh god thank you for answering that check them off and they're forgotten about but wait a minute We do that because we have this mentality, what I'll call a checklist Christianity mentality, that somehow growth in Jesus is about uh, boxes, right, on your to-do list. got all these boxes, and it's about, all right, check that one off. Oh, I'm doing so good. Check two, three. I got three today. How many did you get? Yeah, I'm better than you. And that's like what we think about. It's like, oh, cool, read my devotions. Check. Prayed. Check. Um... Oh, I held my tongue when I wanted to say something naughty. Check. And so we, we kind of assess ourselves that way. But that's not growth. We like to think of that as growth because we're a very progress-oriented culture. And we like to have uh, accomplishment. And so like, yeah, look what I've done. I did those things today. I'm pretty good. But growth in Christianity isn't that simple. Oh, did it. I've now arrived. We will never arrive ever We are in this gradual, slow growth, and there's always more fruit to be born. There's always more territory to expand the gospel into. We never, ever, ever, ever arrive. And in fact, the most humble of Christians I talk to are the ones who seem to seriously struggle with the fact of where they are with God. They seem, every time I talk to them, it seems like they're doing worse. Like, ah, oh, I'm in even worse than that. I'm looking at them thinking, I, really? Because I think that you're closer to Jesus than you were ever before. And all they can see is, I am so miserable. I don't get it. I don't know why. And what I've begun to realize in talking to people and even assessing myself is the only place we ever arrive at is closer to Jesus and deeper into the heart of the battlefield. And as we're there, closer to Jesus, we begin to realize how imperfect we really are. See, we have a lot of false conceptions about ourselves. We make a lot of excuses for our weaknesses. But when we get towards Jesus and closer to his magnificence, suddenly we realize how pathetic we have been in our excuses and things that we thought were okay and they're not. And so really, as we get closer to him, sometimes we feel like we're getting further. He's like, man, I'm a worse person than I was when I began. But no, no. The good news is, is that he is simply showing more and more and more, more and more areas that you can grow in. Also, when you get into the heat of the battle, it is when it's the fiercest that you realize most your weakest places. You never duel swords with somebody else. You'll never know how bad of a swordsman you are. Never. I can hold this sword, this really nice shiny sword. I'm pretty good at this. Swing it around. Imagine it. You've seen a movie or two. I know how to do that. And you can in your mind think you're really awesome until you actually clash steel with another person. And then you're thinking, oh my, I have a lot to learn. And that's what happens. And so we realize that there is a need for persistent prayer that our growth continues and continues. And we never check someone off or check ourselves off like, I've mastered that. No, be careful. We're not checklist people. We are on a long endurance to get to the end. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And we won't know we arrive until we get there. So that's, that's growth. And that's why Paul prays even for a church that seemingly is growing and has a great report. We therefore continue to pray for you. So what does he pray for them? He wants them uh, to be filled. This is in verse nine, filled with all knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So I want you to have wisdom in the will of God. Yep. I want you guys to grow up a bit, mature. 
You know, you've, you've been asking your leaders a lot about, what do I do? I've got all these options. I don't know what the will of God is. And, and that's really cool to do. We sometimes need to ask the Proverbs say in a, in the multiple, in the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. And that's good. Uh, but Paul also wants them to begin to learn, stop writing me every time you need help and begin to exercise the wisdom you find in Jesus to know the will of God. You can know this. You can know what God wants of you. So I'm going to pray that you have wisdom and understanding in that will of God so that you guys can be mature and learn how to cross the street without holding someone's hand. And in verse 10, second, he wants to pray for their walk so that they'd have wisdom in the will of God. Second, their walk. Uh, and so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Well, who can do that? No one's going to be worthy all the time. But Paul's talking about a direction he wants them to go. As long as you keep going this direction, God's going to smile. He's going to say, oh, yeah, like my daughter, Evelyn, just started walking, right? So, you know, she doesn't walk very well. <laughs> but her attempts are pleasing to Brittany and myself. And that's how God looks at us, right? Hey, you're, you're trying, and that pleases me. And so this is what Paul wants to see their walk look like. These are the efforts we're putting forth. It says, uh, fully pleasing to him. That's what it means to walk in a manner worthy, pleasing him. Uh, this is how. Uh, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. So there should be fruit. Uh, in other words, the results, the, the, the character of Jesus should be being reproduced in you. And slow is fine. Slow is eternal, right? That's how fruit grows. It doesn't grow overnight. So that's okay. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So that your knowledge of God is not the same as it was when you first believed in him. No, we should be walking with him long enough to know this is how he speaks to me. Or this is how he wants me to start reacting in these situations. Our knowledge of him should be increasing and so there you see again, this, he's said this twice now, bearing fruit and growing. This, this concept that's going all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God put Adam and Eve in there and said, Hey, I want you guys to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. I want you to do that. And so the original Great Commission um, to go out and be fruitful is what Paul is reinforcing here. Uh, this is what we want. Keep bearing fruit and keep multiplying. Let the gospel increase in your midst. Uh, so he continues, this is walking in a manner worthy of God. 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. So you'll be able to do this because his power will come to you according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So this power will help you to keep walking when you don't want to keep walking. And it will give you joy when it doesn't feel like a happy moment. The joy inside not interrupted, uh, interrupted by the problems outside. That's what his strength will give to us. And then 12, finally, real maturity, real walking in a manner worthy of God, giving thanks to the Father. That's a good sign that you know Jesus. Giving thanks to him. Not always grumbling about why you can't do it. So this father, um, in verse 13, we see this about his son. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we were once in darkness, but this is just another way of explaining. You're forgiven and saved. You're once in a kingdom of darkness, and Jesus came and rescued you and brought you into his kingdom of light. So you have a new king, you have a new set of laws, you have a new world that you've been transported into. It sounds great and glorious, but the danger is that you didn't leave one world to get to the other. You simply joined the other while in the midst of the dark one, which means you're in enemy territory and you are in a hostile environment trying to serve another king. You know, you know, did you know this, that kings don't like you serving other kings? Did you know that? They, they, they have a word for you, rebel, traitor. They hang you, they kill you. And that's why we have persecution on the earth. And that's why ISIS is not very friendly towards Christians and other groups are not very friendly towards Christians. We serve a different king than the rest serve. And we are therefore seen as traitors to the gods of this world. And so it sounds really nice and beautiful on paper, but in reality, we're walking in very dangerous ground, which is why Paul says we must keep praying even for those who are doing well. 
So he's concerned with their growth. He prays for them. You see that. Now, I want you to go with me to, um, we're going to skip a little bit. We're going to go back to the middle, but I want you to see, because he, he begins this Thanksgiving with, uh, I want you to grow. He's going to end it with, I want you to grow. So I want to keep those things together. So in 124, we see this. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Come again. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Okay, in my flesh... I am filling up, I think he means I'm fulfilling what is lacking or what was not fulfilled in Christ's afflictions or in his death on the cross. Hmm. Just Jesus. He's sufficient. He is more than enough for us. And now Paul says, well, except for at the cross, it wasn't quite complete. So I'm going to suffer to complete what he didn't complete. That is what it reads on the surface. And that's how many people have come with questions. What does this mean? <laughs> because obviously that's not what Paul's point is. If his point is just Jesus, he wouldn't just instantly in chapter one, just totally make his point crumble and fall around us. Uh, he, he, he must mean something else. And so um, I've heard people give these nice attempts of explaining this, but I think that um, they don't make as much sense as this one. So <laughs> I didn't come up with it, so I'm not taking credit. Um, I think that what Paul is saying is, yes, there was something lacking in the death of Jesus, but it's not that Jesus failed. It's not that he and his death wasn't enough for us. It was the only thing lacking in his death. And this was by design. It wasn't an oversight. The thing lacking in his sufferings was a messenger to go and share about the sufferings to those that didn't witness them. Does that make sense? So what is lacking? Well, he died on the cross and he's, he's bringing sinners from darkness into his kingdom of light. Uh, that all happened. It's fulfilled. It's done. Just Jesus. It's enough. But Paul's saying, but there's so many people that didn't get to witness that. So what's lacking in this is getting the message to them. So that's what I'm doing in my sufferings. I am being that messenger. I'm fulfilling this part of the deal that others haven't been able to see. They're seeing the suffering of Jesus through my suffering. I want my life to embody what he's done for them. So that though they say, oh, I never saw God before. They can say, but I've seen Paul suffer for us. And that must be the love of God. That's what he's saying. So this is Paul, and this is, this is his idea of growth. I'm going to go and suffer for people. Hmm. So this is what he's doing. He's filling up in his body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of Christ's body. So Paul's taking the beating on his body for Christ's body, which is the believers, us, and the people, of course, in his time. Uh, that is the church. So, verse 25, of this church, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, 26, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So this is what I'm doing. God has always been into bringing all of his people out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light. Now that there's messengers willing to suffer and to share the mystery is being revealed and it's no longer dark. And what's God going to do? What's going on in the world? We now know. And this is what Paul's doing. So then in verse 27, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. So, okay, the Jews always had the revelation of God, but the Gentiles didn't, being pagan and eating their pulled pork sandwiches. Uh, they had to come and get along with the Jews and the Gentiles are now being included, which was mysterious because the Jews thought, well, we're the people. And now the Gentiles are coming in too. Like, wow, this is mind blowing. And so Paul's saying, yes, the Gentiles are being brought in too. And so this is what we want to do is make, um, make the, gl the glory of the mystery known. And what is that glorious mystery is this, uh, the end of 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's in you. This just Jesus, this he's enough, he's in you. We don't need to say Jesus plus this. Everything that God is, is in you. 
And that is hope that you will receive his glory in the end. If Jesus is going to be glorified in the end, then you will too if he's in you. That's the idea. Because how can he be glorified in you not if he's in you? So we are on a very glorious train headed to the right depot. 28. So he continues, uh, him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that, so this is why I'm doing all this, the suffering, the, the bringing Gentiles and Jews together, the teaching with all wisdom. This is why that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. I want growth. I want fruit. I want increasing. I want everyone mature. So for this, I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. I struggle for this chapter two, verse one, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, the Colossians and for those at Laodicea, a city just 10 miles away. And for all who have not seen me face to face, which is most of them, that their hearts, this is the struggle I have. I want their hearts to be encouraged. How? By being knit together in love. So as they come together in love, not just warm feelings for one another, but actual actions in which they prefer one another over themselves, that through those actions, you become knit together and you become encouraged because, wow, people love me. People care about me. I'm encouraged. And then you feel bold and empowered to do the same for other people. And they feel bold and empowered to do the same for other people and so forth. That's what he wants them to do to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Verse three in whom in Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you guys have been thinking about dabbling in like Jesus plus maybe, uh, Zeus is pretty cool. Maybe not Zeus. Like we don't think he's a real God because we think Jesus and God are God. But um, maybe like the way they pray to Zeus will incorporate some of those practices in here. And that will, that will get us into the deeper mysterious realm of Jesus. Paul's like, well, actually, um, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You don't need to go fishing elsewhere. They're in Jesus. So maybe you just need to press deeper into him. And love him more. And keep him as the main thing. So in verse 4, we now get a hint of the false teaching. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So he's fearful that they may be deluded. They may be drawn away. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul wants growth. He prays for it in the first half. Then in this last part, he struggles for it. He struggles, he strives, he suffers so that they would grow too. But now growth and growth, praying for it, suffering for it. We have the very middle where all this growth comes out of, and it is just Jesus. This is where it all comes out of. And this is how Paul writes. This is what I wanted you to see. I'm writing for your growth. Then at the end, I'm striving and struggling for your growth. But sandwiched in between these desires for your growth is the source itself. Jesus. So let's now go to 115 and cover what we skipped. 115. This is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. So we may not be able to see God, but in Jesus, we get a glimpse of God. He is reflecting his character and his nature. We see what God's heart is, what Jesus said, what Jesus did on earth. We can know for certainty that this is the very action and word of God. And so we can know God through Jesus who imaged him for us. And he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, what's going to happen here is that what we're actually entering into in verse 15 is a hymn. It is widely believed for those that study uh, Greek very thoroughly that Paul's language changes quite a bit here. And it reads more 
poet, uh, like a poem, more poetically. And they think that he's inserting a hymn the church would have been singing at this time in here to make his point. Like, remember, this is what we believe about Jesus. Let's hold on to this. So it's sort of like a confession of sorts that he's affirming. Uh, He may have, you know, worded it differently or whatever for his purposes. We would never really know. It's totally a guess. But I think that would be really interesting if this is indeed a hymn. And it has really neat structure. And that's what I want to point out real quick is in verses 15 to 16 we have the first section of this and that's simply he's affirming that jesus is the source of everything then there's a middle transition in verses 17 and 18 in which it says that jesus uh, is a sustainer of everything and then in the middle of 18 it says he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead from that part to the end of 20 is the third section of this hymn. And that's where it affirms that Jesus is the king of creation. He is, I'm sorry, the king of our salvation. He's a solution. So here's, what it, here's how this hymn works. Uh, Jesus is over creation. We're going to look at that real quick. Uh, Jesus is over salvation. So he's working in both of these. He made everything and now he's saving us. And in the very middle, Jesus is holding everything together. Okay. So now we go back to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn, please don't think that means that as God is creating everything, he said, okay, Jesus is first. Bring him over. Let's create him. There he is. Um, That would be an error. Jesus was not created. Okay? That's not what it means. It says he's the firstborn of creation. The idea is from that time, the firstborn son of a family had special privileges. He was the inheritor of everything his father had. And so when it says that Jesus is the firstborn, it doesn't mean, okay, he was the firstborn of a sequence of other siblings. No, it means he has the position of authority over all the other siblings. So in other words, everything that is God's is Jesus's because he is the son of God. That's the firstborn of creation. Creation itself is his. God gave it to him. So. 16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. The things we're just beginning to learn about in science, all with our microscopes and everything. So, uh, you know, the cosmos that the Hubble telescope's reaching down to the tiny, tiny little things that we can't see through naked eye. All of this made by Jesus. Um, Now, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. And that closes that part of the hymn. That's quite an affirmation. He is the king of creation. He is the source of everything. Everything comes from him. Wow. Now in verse 17, he is the sustainer of everything. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. So, from all things, whatever, everything, it seems like it's saying, the whole cosmos, he holds all this together. He's sustaining it. And, oh, by the way, church, you too. If he can hold the cosmos, he can hold the church. So he's the head of this, and he's sustaining it too. So we don't have to worry about the church suddenly disappearing. Oh, my gosh, there's persecution. Oh, my gosh, the laws of the land. We can't be Christians anymore. Don't worry about it. Jesus has got it covered. He's sustaining, if he's sustaining the universe and it hasn't blown up and gone away yet, then the church isn't going to blow up and go away yet. That's the idea. He's a sustainer. Everything is being continued in his firm grasp and uh, grip and grasp. Now, um, if you want to find something really interesting, I'm not going to take the time because I'm being pinched right now. But um, there are many who have commented on the fact of him holding all things together about this mysterious uh, Force. Some have called it the strong force. Some have called it atomic glue in which uh, the protons and neutrons within the nucleus of an atom should not be held together. They should be flying apart. And science doesn't really know how to explain at the moment how those things hold together. And so, of course, um, we look at this verse like, well, we know <laughs> we got the answer. And so there's this crazy thought of what if God just decided, all right, Jesus, let go. What would happen if all the atoms split apart? Crazy. So um, he sustains everything. It's insane. And then third part of the hymn, he's the solution to everything. 
He's the king of your salvation. Uh, so middle 18, he is the beginning. Now, here you go. See the parallels? The firstborn. There you go. Another firstborn. The firstborn from the dead. So again, uh, he is the one who is over the dead. That's quite a title because of his resurrection. The first one to come back from the dead. He now has the authority over all the dead. He is the judge. The Bible teaches us Jesus will judge at the end. Um, that in everything he might be preeminent or he might have supremacy. He would be the first, the top, nothing above him. And listen, the number one enemy in all of history, that every single human being and created thing on this earth and in the entire universe, the number one enemy we all have in common is death. And no one has ever been able to conquer death. But the beautiful thing about Jesus' resurrection is, He came out of the tomb and was essentially saying, without saying these words, but by coming out of the tomb, it was saying, well, if you follow the God whom sent me, you won't have to worry about death. Because I'm the firstborn of the dead and I am preeminent in all things because not even death holds a candle to me. Wow. I'd follow, you know, if you can't beat them, join them, right? If no one can beat Jesus, then join him. (laughs) And that's the idea. Not even death can beat him. So uh, it goes on, verse 19. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In who? Jesus. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In other words, well, okay, we feel like we got most of God. So let's add to Jesus this. And you insert practice, belief, thing that you do. Now I've got the fullness of God. Wait a minute. If you needed that extra thing to be added to Jesus, to get the fullness of God, I need to ask and reel us back and say, which God are we experiencing the fullness of? So in Jesus, he's enough. All the fullness of God is here in him. He is enough, just Jesus. And so 20, through him, Oh, fullness of God was pleased to dwell 20 and through him to reconcile to himself all things. He didn't say all people, interestingly, all things reconciled to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so the idea is that heaven and earth are at odds against one another because um, when God created everything, he lived with man on earth. Heaven and earth dwelt together. Heaven, God's realm. Earth, man's realm. They were one. But in our rebellion, they separated. And so now we talk about heaven somewhere else and earth somewhere else. And they're not quite cooperating. But in Jesus, heaven and earth meet together. There's reconciliation. He is God and man. They meet right there. The intersection, the little pinpoint connection when he's walking on the earth. And those that follow him and believe in him. They're earthlings who are now joining into heaven. And so the reconciliation is happening in us, the followers of Jesus. That's the reconciliation. And Jesus, in the end, wants to, with his followers, reconcile all things so that everything will find ultimately its purpose. Or in other words, it will receive the glory it was originally created with. The glory which we've lost because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So this is Jesus. This is our Jesus, the one leading this reconciliation, not just you personally, but everything reconciled. That is powerful. That is amazing what Jesus is going to do. So that there concludes he's the king of your salvation, or in other words, the solution to everything. Everything finds its answer, its climax in him, its purpose and so that's the hymn centering on Jesus. You can see very deep. You, could, you need to meditate on these, maybe one part every day this next week. And just really let the supremacy, the Jesus is enough, just Jesus. Let that soak in and lift your spirit and soul in awe of who he is and say, my God, I am sorry for everything that I thought I needed in addition to you. Because this is enough right here. One of the reasons why the Colossians were adding more than Jesus to their routine is a term known as welt angst. I don't know if you've heard that word before, 
Um, you, you know the concept very well, but I love the word because it stuck with me. And it's so graphic, welt angst. Now, um, you can ask Sandy and Frank Rick, uh, Richter later, um, but this is a German word. So you can ask them how you actually say it. But this is the American boy way. <laughs> uh, welt angst is simply an anxiety about the world. Uh, welt, world, and angst, anxiety. Uh, that's wealth angst. Now, this was very prevalent. In fact, I don't really know who has who beat. Back then, they were very wealth angsty, and we are very much wealth angsty today. But back then, they didn't understand a lot of things about nature. So they were really like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Why is there a hurricane? The gods are angry, right? That's like their explanation for everything. And so they go through the world terrified of everything. Like, oh, we, 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 we don't want this bad thing to happen. So the, the, the worldview was that heaven and earth were at odds with one another. So if you're a pagan, which is what we're dealing with, the pagan culture, um, they would see the gods as angry against the humans. And that's why bad things happen. And so heaven and earth are angry at each other. And so they walk around very like, don't disturb the gods, appease them and manipulate them so that good things happen to us. So what this produces in this wealth angst is a superstitious way of living. So, you know, um, if you do this, then bad things will happen to you. But if you do this, good things will happen to you. And this sort of pattern and thinking came out of wealth angst. And so what would happen in, in Colossae is um, some well-intending people, I'm sure, but were just very misinformed, were saying, guys, we don't need more persecution as the church. I think we need to start thinking about this God and like why we're making this God angry. Like, yeah, we need to like sac- make a sacrifice there while we're worshiping Jesus. And you can see like what started to happen is their anxiety about the cause being hostile towards them or not working properly or working against them caused them to say, oh, we need more than Jesus. And now you can see Paul's immediate attack is, no, Jesus is enough. He holds the whole stinking cosmos in his hands. And you want to go to these little weakly forces and whatever they are and worship them? This is stupid. You don't need this wealth angst. He is sustaining it. all came from him. He's sustaining it. And he's the climax of it all. He will bring it to its proper solution. So as long as he's God, you don't have to worry about a thing. That's what Paul wants them to see. But as I step back, I begin to wonder, how are we doing without wealth angst? We may not be as superstitious because we may understand more about how the world works. But when we watch the news or we read the multitude of blogs that you probably shouldn't trash your brain with of opinions. And I don't know if people still take the newspaper, but that too, um, as you receive these things, it creates immense anxiety for our world within us. Oh, not me. No, I know God's on the throne. You say that, but I hear the conversations and they sound dire And they sound like they're in distress. I hear angst. I hear anger. I hear, what are we going to do in the conversations? I'm not denying. I'm not saying like everything's peachy and fine. Ignore it all. There are some bad things going on. But the way we talk about it, I hear wealth angst. And, you know, we're bombarded with so much to worry about, whether it's world hunger, the inequality of wages, uh, bad leaders here and there, sex trafficking, any sort of injustice. If it's ISIS, if it's the beheadings of Christians over here, if it's what the American courts want to tell us to do about this and about uh, how they've legalized certain aspects of marriage. And like you go down the list and there's way more. There's hurricanes, there's fires. I hear that all the time. Everyone's like wealth angst about it's dry. It's not raining fires like it's everywhere. We are consumed with this wealth angst and here's what i need us to think about beyond just all those huge things there are the little things too that you are worrying yourself to death over the things in your cosmos that you can't control are we making ourselves complete by saying jesus plus worrying makes me complete We have a bad habit of letting go of what we can't control and grasping and gripping and squeezing to death things that we want to control. And that's why we talk and that's why we vent because we want somehow to feel empowered by, I got others to hear me. Maybe we'll rise up and revolt. (laughs) 
we need to check what we really believe about Jesus. Is he, my translation, preeminent? It's such a powerful word. Is he preeminent or is he not? Is he the source, the sustainer, and the solution of everything? Or do we need to sort of help him out with our worries, with our conversations? So let's make Jesus enough. And I think that you will find that the anxiety and the worrying in your life will shrink as he is magnified magnifying the raw, organic, authentic power of Jesus. This is what we need fresh in our foreview and filter the wealth angst of our world through this him in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. This, he is the source, the sustainer and the solution to everything. This is just Jesus. And or, sort of ironic, oh, just Jesus. He's only everything. This is him. And this is the one who Paul is saying. So as you've received this just Jesus. That's next week. Let's live in it. But this is the Jesus we received. The one we read about tonight. So let's receive that and not a bunch of wealth angst. So there are things as the worship team comes up. There are things that you can't control but you're trying so hard and you're worried about it and you're anxious about it you've got to let go and hold on to jesus you're doing that because you don't trust you're doing that because you want control you've got to let go and trust jesus trust just jesus see if you don't remember that So I want us, as we take communion tonight, um, it's at the end of each aisle, if you don't know. So you can just go back during the song and grab it. But I, I want you, before you even get up to get it, to settle tonight. Who is really the one in charge of the cosmos? Is it my worrying or is it Jesus's power? And who have I or what have I added into this equation? Jesus plus blank equals complete. Can I really say just Jesus? Or do I need to do some subtraction and take some things out of that space? And then there's some of us who uh, hear this just Jesus, but we haven't done the receiving part. We see him, but tonight's your night. And I want you, before you get up to take communion to receive this Jesus as the God of your life and to let your wealth angst leave and let him now be the one who controls your cosmos. I guarantee you're going to be a very different person and you're going to experience the growth Paul is talking about and you're not going to believe who you become. And then you can go take the, the juice and the cracker, which represent his death for us. And you can take that and say, take that wealth angst. Jesus, you are more than enough. Forgive us for not believing.